1: Hello, my name's Jess
2: Phillips, and this is Yours Sincerely. At the start of the very first lockdown, in my work as an MP, I was seeing lots of my constituents who were losing loved ones to COVID-19 without a chance to say one last goodbye. It got me thinking about what I would say to my husband and kids if I never got a chance to tell them how much I loved them. So I wrote them each a letter. I still keep it in a safe place. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words on paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them, someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Benjamin Zephaniah is a poet, writer and musician. He has travelled the world performing poetry and touches on topics such as race, culture and politics. He's been named one of Britain's top 50 post-war writers, won the BBC Young Playwrights Award and has been awarded 16 honorary doctorates. He is, to me, the most important thing, a Brummie. And today I'm excited to talk to him about the letters he would send to three people who mean the world to him. So this podcast is all about letter writing, and obviously you, you are a prolific writer of things, and we're going to try not to just talk about Birmingham the whole time, because I'm sure that <laughs> the people who listen to it will not understand all of the references that we might make to Birmingham throughout. Right then, so have you ever written anybody a letter? Are you, are you a prolific letter writer?
3: I don't write a lot of letters, and I haven't written any for years really, but I used to back in the day. Well, I had to at one point. Because I was, you know, so far away from my city and the only way of keeping in touch with people back then was to write letters. But on the whole, I don't write that many letters, I'm afraid. You're not a big letter writer. You're not. Well, when you say letter writing, do you mean by hand or do you mean typing? No, not necessarily
2: just by hand. I mean, I tend to do it on, uh, I tend to do it via the medium of email. Email?
3: That's not a letter.
2: Well, not necessarily a written letter, but the idea that somebody you're reaching out to somebody to tell them something, not like an email that's like meet me next you know week at Seven So Place at two p.m. or you know what do you think of this scheme sort of email. But when sometimes I will write long, thoughtful. It's the thought that counts, I'd say. Long, thoughtful emails to people who have reached out to me about certain things, or I will write letters to my family but I still send them often via email when I want to talk to them about things that have been going on and and stuff like that. Like that terrible sort of Christmas round robin letter people used to send in their Christmas cards, telling them like, you know, Susie's got an A in ballet and things like that. I don't do that, but I, I sometimes will, when I need to s- express my feelings to my family, especially and my friends, I will write it in a, a letter or an email.
3: Well, I guess my real yeah. answer to your question is, Yes, I do write letters, but they tend to be... I've got some hardcore fans that have been writing to me for years, and I write them back, and they are letters that we put in envelopes and go to the postbox and post. There's one lady in particular that's been writing to me for years, and she's never asked me for my email or anything like that. We write letters. I can't think I've ever written a letter to a member of my family. We just call each other and shout. <laughs>
2: my i have a brother who lives in france and he's he's genuinely got a genuine aversion to the phone like i think it comes from moving to a foreign country when he was quite young and being terrified that he wasn't going to be able to understand somebody unless they were in front of him. And so he has a massive aversion to the phone. So now we WhatsApp in this modern time. He'll send, you know, we talk to each other on WhatsApp, but we do phone each other and shout to each other as well. But you have even more brothers and sisters than me. So it would be a lot of letter writing to be getting on with if you were writing to them all all the time.
3: Yes, uh, I, I genuinely can't remember writing any of my brothers or sisters a letter. Oh, well, maybe
2: today's the day you can do it. So do you have any letters that you've kept from the past? Do you have any letters that have been sent to you that are like a, a memento? I can see in the background that you have a very serious order of things. So maybe you have a, a pile of letters that you've kept.
3: Actually, I've got behind me, my number box file a letter from Nelson Mandela that I've kept. <sighs> But the weird thing is, it's a really angry letter. Well, it's not angry, actually. He, <laughs> he's apologising to me. Or kind of... It's, it's a bit of a complicated story. There's this poet friend that we have in common called Mazwaki and Booli. And he was framed up by the South African police. And he was a poet that performed in Mandela's inauguration. He was um, framed up by South African police. We knew he didn't do what, what they accused him of doing. He was just about to go on a world tour. There's no reason why he's going to walk in a sweet shop and, and, and rob a few pounds. Anyway, I contacted Mandela because I'd, I'd known him. And um, I said, you know, this is outrageous. Actually, this judge that sentenced him, had not swore allegiance to the South African constitution, although he did swear allegiance to the apartheid constitution. So Mandela wrote to me, he said, well, you know, we need all the judges we can get, kind of thing. They were pretty really desperate at the time. And so I've got that letter, which is a bit odd.
2: No one's ever going to be able to compete with I got a letter from Nelson Mandela <laughs> that essentially was me having a go at Nelson Mandela. I could understand that people having a letter from Nelson Mandela where it's like, you know, sort of, uh, an amazing and uplifting story, but you yeah, know, basically,
3: a slightly disappointing letter from Nelson Mandela is not is not going to be beaten. He's kind of apologising to me and just making excuses. Well, there speaks
2: politics, my friends. There <laughs> speaks politics. It's often you have to be disappointing.
3: Yeah, true. And I've got another letter which I've kept, which is the letter that you get from Number Ten when you when they offer you an OBE. I've got that. And I think I've kept a copy of my reply, which is up yours or something. To <laughs>
2: <laughs> My mum used to call an OBE Other Buggers Effort. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she referred to it as, Another Buggers Effort.
3: I've actually heard that. Uh, I've actually heard that. And it's come from Birmingham as yeah. well, so it probably was your yeah, mum. Yeah, I
2: think maybe yeah, maybe it was my mum. It's a definitely a Birmingham thing, <laughs> yeah. Other Buggers Effort. Well, those are two brilliant and historic letters to, to have um, that you kept... That is amazing. No one's ever going to beat Nelson Mandela, that is. And goes back to Birmingham schools, because, of course, there is a school in Birmingham called the Nelson Mandela School in Spark Hill, which always makes me chuckle when I go past, because it just makes me think of Nelson Mandela House in um, Only Fools and Horses. So I often <laughs> have a chuckle when I drive past that school, uh, which is almost every single day of my life. So... This is all about writing letters to celebrate the people who matters to us. So I've asked you to think about the people you would want to send letters to, the people who mean the world to you. So we'll start with the person who just means the absolute world to you. And who would you send your first letter?
3: Well, this is the person that um, I can't see at the moment. And um, he doesn't use technology either, so I really can't see him. He comes from a little village in China. And his name is Chen Jiao Sen. China, or Asia generally speaking, and like lots of parts of Africa, the family name comes first because it's respect for the family. So Chen is his family name, and then Jiao Sen is his name. So Chen Jiao Sen. And he is my Tai Chi teacher. I normally go and visit him every year to get my Tai Chi practice. Tai Chi has really changed my life. It's, some people kind of think of it as this kind of, slightly hippy, floaty exercise, but there's a lot more to it than that. And so I would like to probably write him a letter telling him, gosh, how much he means to me. Yeah, yeah, I have a great love for this man.
2: And so he lives in China and he teaches you Tai Chi... In person, you go to China to have the lessons, or did he go back because of the pandemic?
3: No, no, he lives in China, and every year I go to see him. Wow. And I haven't been able to for the last two years.
2: Wow. And how did you find him?
3: I sort of, it's a really weird story. I went to this village. There's different styles of Tai Chi, and the Tai Chi that I do is called Chen Tai Chi. And there's a village in China called Chen Jiago, So the village is named after the family, and as I just said, his name is Chen. So he's from the family that originated this Tai Chi hundreds of years ago. So I went there on one trip. I used to go to China anyway to study martial arts, but I went to this village on one trip. And I was a bit disillusioned because I'd come across quite a bad teacher who just wanted to rip me off. And the day I was leaving, somebody said to me, "Um, I want to introduce you to a teacher, and I think you'll like him. And he said he's a very old man, but you know, you'll get on with him. And I really didn't want to go. And then the guy said to me, where do you live? And I said, where am I staying? And I said, well, I'm staying at this particular hotel. And he said, listen, I'll walk with you and we can just nip over and meet him. He'll take five minutes. And that's what we did. And I met him. And actually, when he said he was an old man, he's only like a year or so older than me. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Uh, anyway, but he gave me a Tai Chi lesson for about, 15 minutes. And it was the best Tai Chi lesson I had. And I just said, I want to hang out here with this guy. And I was leaving that day. Um, So I couldn't see him anymore. But the next year I came back. And ever since then, and it's like 15 years or so now, I've been kind of going back and spending time with him. Sometimes it's two times a year. When I didn't have my university commitments, I used to just go two times a year. But now, usually around now, I'm there with him. Tai Chi master in the village where Tai Chi originated from. And it's the real deal, you know. Um, I found that it's much better than... I don't want to put down Tai Chi teachers in England, but, you know, you're getting it kind of second, third hand here. And I think it's just best to go back to the roots. Because in one month, I'll get like two years training that you'd get in in England.
2: And then you practice it the rest of the time in the year without the guidance. You you practice it... And, I mean, I I have travelled to China a number of times with my work and you see it when you're there. You see people in the parks and... And school children undertaking Tai Chi and their, their School children's uniforms in China are basically amazing shell suits I'm like, it's just, yeah, that's They, right, they yeah. all look absolutely amazing <laughs> They look like they're like extras in like a 1980s Superfly film <laughs> um, And you see the... I'm always like, oh, our kids have got it so rough with their school clothes They have to wear it so much better in China But you see people of all ages in parks and public spaces doing what I assume, I'm no expert, to be Tai Chi when you are in China. So it definitely seems to be part of a culture. And it doesn't seem like it's like hippy dippy people in the, you know, sort of middle class people. You know, everybody is doing that sort of thing in the parks and places. So so what impact has meeting Chen Jiao-sen had on you?
3: To put it simply, I really love waking up (laughs) to practice. There were some times years ago when things weren't going right and I'd think, you know, kind of crawl out of bed. Now I go, right, go and practice Tai Chi. I have a space in my house, or like a gym if you like, where I go and practice. I make sure that wherever I live, Actually, even when I'm traveling and I have to stay in hotels, I make sure there's a place where I can practice my Tai Chi. So it kind of helps set me up for the day. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world, what I'm doing politically or artistically or whatever. It doesn't matter how busy I am. His practice, what he's taught me, has meant that I will always find some time for me. You know, When you practice Tai Chi, you get to know every bit of your body. I say every bit. Literally every toenail. That's why you, you, they, we slightly go into a trance when we're doing it, because we have to know exactly where our weight is, exactly how our hands move without like feeling our hands. Our hands have to be kind of slightly feelingless, if there's such a word. There's probably not a word, but I just invented it.
2: We'll make it up. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we will know lots of words that other people won't know <laughs> yeah. that we, we will understand, like yeah. gambol. Who knew? Who knew yeah. that outside of Birmingham, the word gambol didn't exist?
3: Yeah. Boston. When I feel in Boston. Boston. <laughs> so this awareness of the body, and I, this is something that has really impacted me, kind of really knowing myself and taking some time in the day for me. I did have an experience a couple of, well, many years ago when I was in Memphis, Tennessee, just down the road from where Elvis Presley's house was. I came off stage after a gig. I walked off, and just as I passed the curtain, I collapsed. Exhaustion. The doctor said to me, You're exhausted. He said, You've got to take some time out. I went on stage the next night, same theatre, walked off stage again. I think it was just the, the adrenaline that kept me going. I walked off stage again, and I collapsed again. And the doctor said to me, He said, I told you to take a rest. And I mean, I did last night. He said, look, you've got exhaustion. I thought exhaustion is something you get when you run the end of a marathon, you know, when you, when you get to the end. You say no, like, the way your brain is wired, you need a break, you need to do something else. Uh, you're just working too hard. He looked at my diary, I had to do 42 concerts in 40 days or something. And he said, look, you've got to start giving some time for yourself you're not going to save the world if you are unhealthy if you're unfit and i came back to um, england and that's when i took my tai chi and my hobbies if you like much more seriously and i said i've got to dedicate some time for me yes the revolution is important but i've got to take care of myself
2: yeah the people who are successful in revolutions i imagine they have quite a lot of downtime. You just only get to read about the bits that, that where they were really active. No one ever writes a memoir of a revolutionary whilst they were, you know, taking a bath every morning. That that often gets missed out. So, you know, don't worry. You're allowed to have time in the revolution, I think. <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> yeah. you are. They, it just hasn't been documented to this day. Maybe we should write a book called, you know, The Sort of Downtime from the Revolution. To encourage people that it's not because less people will want to take part in the revolution if they think it's non-stop work. So maybe we need to pick up the the number of people taking part in a revolution by suggesting that we can all have some quiet time as well.
3: Revolutionary hobbies. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I can sort of pitch now to Channel Four. <laughs> <laughs> Just like you know, let's go behind.
2: What did Che Guevara? What was his r- routine in the morning? Um, so, yeah, I think it'd be interesting.
3: I'm oh, I'm going to go slightly off-piece here, but, but one of my neighbours where I live is uh, Jeff Capes. Do you remember him?
2: Oh, my God, of course I do. Famous yeah, shot-putter, yeah, yeah. strong man.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what his hobby is?
2: I do know this. Is he like uh, what my mother would have called a uh, budgerigar fancier?
3: Yes, exactly, yeah. And he's so delicate with them. This guy that can pick up a bus... You want to see him, and he's got his little birds. They're so tender, and he's so delicate with them. <laughs> Sorry, digression. That, that is,
2: uh, <laughs> it is so weird. I, I, I know this because talking of revolution, I was in the occupied territories of Palestine, and we were on a delegation with a number of different members of Parliament. And we were in the land of this, the site of this man's land and it had been cleared away and his business had been stopped from operating and he was explaining to us what had happened to him. And we were all aghast at the way this man, this Palestinian man, had been treated. This Tory MP who was on the delegation with us turned to me and my colleague, Lou Haig. He's on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and and he was like, we're going to have to get the Foreign Affairs Select Committee to do this. Would you help me get the, the Labour members on it to push for an inquiry into this sort of uh, land grabs for business in the occupied territories? And we were like, yeah, yeah, we'll try and do that. And he said, what do you think Jeff Capes will think of this? And me and Lou looked at each other. And we were like, what? He was like, like, do you think Jeff Capes had that And I was like, um, I'm not entirely sure that Jeff Capes is the revolutionary angle we want to go for here. But he meant there's a, there's a Labour MP who was also on the committee called Mike Gapes. And he just oh. said his name wrong. But it was the most random moment of my life, standing in the Palestinian occupied territories, being asked what I thought Jeff Capes thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then for the for the whole rest of the time that we were in both Israel and Palestine, we just kept coming up with like random celebrities from the nineteen eighties. <laughs> we're like, what do you think Annika Rice thinks of partition? <laughs> 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 so yeah, so uh, Jeff Capes featured in a revolutionary moment in my life Even though without any knowledge to himself And that made me then look him up Which is where I learnt that he was a budgerigar fancier We have gone him. so wildly off-piste I never <laughs> I thought I'd ever get to tell my <laughs> Jeff Capes story It's never ever come up before And this is a great moment to tell a Jeff Cape story so, <laughs> getting back to it. So, do you think that Chen knows how you feel about him? Do you think he knows what an impact he's had on your life?
3: Um, no, I don't think he does. Probably not. I can't tell him. Why? Because he doesn't speak English.
2: Ah, oh, so how do you communicate with each other then?
3: Ah, oh, you see... There are times when we have i mean some of the younger students may have may be able to speak a bit of English, but with tai Chi it's a lot of him showing me and then me repeating and then him showing me where I'm going wrong and correcting me. It's a lot like that it, it, it's 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 a strange thing there's a kind of commun- it's a bit like music you know you can have musicians playing that don't speak the same language but they have the language of music it's like that he he doesn't speak a word of English I oh, speak wow. a little Chinese but not enough to I can say you know have you got a boyfriend can you dance <laughs> words like that in Chinese right <laughs> you know what, what are you doing tomorrow night <laughs> um, but I can't, <laughs> I can't why are you laughing at me <laughs>
2: I just I, I just love that, that most people can say those things in almost every language like can I have a beer Like the terrible British affliction of the British language being so prominent around the world, the English language being so prominent around the world that yeah. basically we, we think that we have like any sort of <laughs> language skill because we can say like hey baby, I can say it in like nine languages que pasa guapa
3: oddly enough I know that he really appreciates me as a student, because I've heard... One of the things I know that he appreciates is that when he gives me lessons and um, I come back a year later, he can see that I have been working on it. He always said, one day he stopped the class and, and was telling off all the Chinese students, saying, look, you're Chinese, you speak Chinese, you, you live in China, this guy's a foreigner and he's on the work, look how good he is compared to you lot. <laughs> amazing <laughs> yeah. but he so did it all in Chinese and now somebody translating for me
2: amazing wow you could learn Chinese now that would be you know lockdown you could have used the opportunity in lockdown to learn Mandarin
3: I've been doing a little bit and the other thing I've got to say about him and this really struck me one year in particular was one year where I turned up really late I think I couldn't go in the normal summer when I go I ended up going in winter and I turned up, and they were all practising outside. And when he saw me, he was teaching a class. When he saw me, he left the class, ran to me, and hugged me. And the whole school was talking about it. And they went, they, I mean, Chinese people don't hug as a whole, really. We're in China. And um, everybody was saying, we've never seen him hug hug anybody. And the way he just abandoned the class and went to you, you know, what is it that you've got? And um, I think he just knows that I... I I appreciate what he's taught me. It's just that I can't tell him in the way that I'd really like to tell him anyway. Like to
2: tell him. Okay, well, we're going to ask you to write a letter to him in a manner of speaking. So for each of the people that we talked to you about today, I will ask you to tell me how you would sign off your letter um, and what words you'd use to Chen Zhao Sen to bring his letter to an end. What would you, how would you sign off a letter to him?
3: Well, there's a word shifu, which is teacher. So I'd say, um, so Shifu, you have taught me a way to live without violence and resentment. You have taught me how to live without greed and artificial stimulants. You have taught me how to live without negativity and envy. More importantly, you have taught me never to take breathing for granted. I hope the recent floods in your village have not caused too much disruption. I wish I could be there to help you rebuild. But I'll be coming to see you as soon as I can. How join.
2: Oh, That's a little bit of Mandarin.
3: The direct translation, it makes complete sense in Chinese, and we've adopted it in England, it means long time no see. Oh really? Yeah, Haojo Bujiin.
2: And that comes from the Mandarin translation. That's brilliant.
3: Yes, yeah, yeah.
2: It's very moving to hear, you know, that somebody can give you the space. Of mind, and this is definitely something that more people could definitely do with, especially those trying to solve crises, the space of mind to rid yourself of, I suppose, the chaos that can exist in people's heads, that is a barrier to getting things done.
3: Yeah, you see, I... Gosh, I, I, I get really emotional as I get older, and I start to think, talk about things, but there's so many people that I know from the 70s and the 80s who are they're no longer with us, because when they wanted to relax or get away from the world of work, they took drugs or they went to drink or really you know extreme forms of hedonism to get high. Um, I always went to my yoga, my martial arts and my Tai Chi. And so it literally was life-saving for me. I I
2: think that from what I know of my own family's experience of exactly what you're talking about, substance misuse to clear the chaos, the 12-step programme, the whole premise of it is trying to find, and lots of people see it as religious, and some will then take that as being spiritual. But the whole thing is, I suppose, trying to replace that with a calm... Um, and something else to help you clear the things other than substance misuses. But you're absolutely right. And I read a terrible statistic yesterday and it certainly has borne out in my constituency. And amongst people I know that we're, this last year in the pandemic, the highest rates of deaths from drugs um, was recorded in the UK. And I know four people who are no longer with us, who were with us at the beginning of the pandemic, who, whether years of substance misuse or or even acute substance misuse, has taken them away in this time.
3: Yeah, I, I know a similar amount too. It's a very, very serious crisis. And I don't know about you, but when I used to do lots of work with young people, I always found that telling them, not to get high it just didn't work because they would look up you know kind of white successful men who have champagne and everything and get high and do it. I say what you got to do find a nice way I get high on breathing can you learn that you know, what I mean? you know I get I get real high on breathing I get high on some of the things I create I get high on the response from the audience because of my poetry or my rap or whatever and you know find really cool ways of getting high which are going to make you live longer not shorten your life and um and i find that works
2: it's definitely pointless to tell people not to do it's like pointless telling young people not to have sex pointless telling young people yes. not to take drugs uh, you know yeah. that and also we we only ever use abstinence from something for certain classes of people
3: yes exactly wait
2: you know you you're not you're, you're not fit to do this so you you you're not allowed to do this but these people up this end it's okay because they can do it in a socially acceptable way and it, it just it just simply doesn't work abstinence doesn't work as a theory it doesn't work in practice you know so especially an adult telling a young person what they can and can't do I mean you might as well piss piss in the wind <laughs>
3: Birmingham girl. Frankly,
2: yeah, I'm, not, I'm definitely from <laughs> Birmingham. No. Definitely. I'm sitting in Birmingham right now. Although I'm in the posh bit now. I live right. in Moseley now, so I'm posh.
3: I was going to say Moseley, not that part well. It is it, now. It, yeah, it used it, it, to be when I was a kid. Is it like Hampstead, though? No. N- I mean,
2: no. No. Yeah. The posh down south <laughs> is different to posh yeah, exactly. in Birmingham. Yeah. It's not comparable middle class people in Birmingham like are middle class because they shop in Waitrose. middle class people in the south of the country are like send their children to very expensive private schools and like here they just get you to go to the local school but you just shop in Waitrose. that's that's the class marker here it's it's different it's definitely different it's definitely different (laughs) but so yeah okay posh for Birmingham is what I'm going to call where I live now Right, so you've signed off your letter to Chen sen and now onto your second letter, which I've asked you to prepare, which is a letter to someone who's no longer around. So who would you send that second letter to?
3: Well, when you say no longer around, I don't know if this guy has passed away or or is still alive, yeah. But many years ago, I got in trouble. I used to get in trouble with the police a lot. And um, I got sent to an approved school, The approved school was in Shropshire, in Shrewsbury, just outside Shrewsbury. And, um, I was there and there was this guy and he worked for Rolls-Rice and he would give a day or two every week to go and work with underprivileged kids, which was us. And one day he got me and, um, his name was Mr. Carr, believe it or not. And he worked on cars. Mr. Carr. Mr. Carr. And he worked with (laughs) Rolls-Rice on Rolls-Rice cars and he taught us mechanics and, um, I got put in this mechanic class because I liked cars and um, he gave me an engine to rebuild. It was an engine from a Ford Corsair 2000e. He said strip this engine and then rebuild it with new parts and I said you know I don't know how to strip an engine I can't do that and he said listen just do it and as you rebuild it if you've got questions just ask me the question and I'll help you. And that's exactly what I did. And it, it, first of all, it taught me how an engine works. Ne- I've never become a mechanic, but when people say the pistons are going or the big ends going or whatever, I know what they're talking about because I've actually had them in my hands and fixed them and, and replaced them or whatever. I think it's a good thing to understand how the combustion engine works. I mean, we soon, rightfully so, should see the back end of it, but um, it's interesting to see how it works.
2: It's a very brummy thing to see how it works Yeah. <laughs> yes, well. it's it's take, a,
3: take it apart and put it back. But the thing was, when I would call him, because I had a problem with, I don't know, the piston ring or something, he would start talking to me about the piston ring, but then he would also say, you know, have you spoken to your mother recently? What's it like at home? You know, are you, keep, are you controlling that temper of yours? Um, have you started to think what you're going to do when you leave here? And... It was after I left I realised that he was using the building of the engine as a way of talking to me and getting me to think about life. I remember one day he said to me, I did something like I borrowed somebody's tools and then never gave them back to the person or something. And he said, "You must, if you've taken his tools, give them back. You must consider the other person. And he said, today, the theme, I want you to remember these words, Benjamin, consideration for others. And everything I did that day was like, consideration for others, consider how the other person is feeling. And it's just one of those things that's drummed in my head now, consideration for others. (laughs) And it was little things like that he did for me that really changed me and makes me remember him really fondly. I've always wanted to meet him and thank him, you know.
2: Well, maybe he's still around, you never know.
3: Yeah, I did don't he, know. Was he? Mr. Did he Carr? have Irish heritage? It's really Irish
2: to be called Carr. C-A-R-R. Yeah, C-A-R-R,
3: yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know.
2: I mean, I'm basing that entirely on a girl called Colette Carr who was in my class at school. <laughs> she was <laughs> Irish, but, you know. So the impact that he had on your life was a sort of turning point.
3: Yeah, and he made me realise that there's nothing wrong with talking about how you really feel. And it doesn't make you a lesser uh, man if you cry. Because, you know, I do remember one day I cried. My mum came to visit me and I got really homesick. And then I walked into the workshop and when he started talking to me about my mum, I just burst into tears, but I didn't want anybody else to see me crying. <laughs> and uh, so he took me into his office where I cried in his office. And he went, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with crying. And he started telling me how he cried. And I think he probably was the only Man that, well, maybe, but certainly the first man that ever told me that he cried. I, I never really saw men cry.
2: Wow, Mr Carr. What a lovely man to give up his time like that. It's amazing to work for Rolls-Royce as a man and to have learnt those soft skills. So people often will say to me, it's impossible to get victims of domestic abuse to come forward, for example. And I'm like, it isn't impossible it's really, really easy, like hard to reach communities. That's what that that sort of language about hard to reach communities just means you're crap at talking to them um, and they don't want to talk back to you. We use this language all the time, but the, the softest of skills is what it takes to get somebody to open up to you. So I don't say to someone, look, love, is your husband bashing you around? I say, is everything all right at home? And you don't need to be. Push people into a corner where they have to tell you something, just have to gently say, Oh, you know, you're all right. <laughs> it's literally as simple as that.
3: Well, something happened to me the other day. I, I turned up to an acceptance speech, actually, for my BAFTA. I won the BAFTA. Oh, my <laughs> but, gosh. Um, well. But um, anyway, I turned up and it was kind of. Lockdown was just easing, and there's this young girl, she's only about 21 or so. She opened my car door when I arrived, and I came out. and I've I've met her before, and I said, Are you all right? And she went, Yeah. And I said, That doesn't sound very convincing. Are you all right? And she kind of went, "Mm, Yeah. And I said, Well, you know, if you don't really want to be at work, just tell him you don't want to be at work, or you know, if you've got a major problem, just say so. And then she just went, My grandmother passed away recently, and um, I was very close to her and I couldn't go to the funeral because of the lockdown and everything. So anyway, I went in and I did the film. I came out after the film and all everybody, the producer and everybody got in their cars and drove up and it was just me and her and I was getting into my car. And she just looked at me and I said to her, "Um, look, you know, when somebody asks you if you're if you're all right, if they're good friends and you can trust them, you should answer truthfully. Don't just say yes because, you know. And then we had this little conversation. Then we were turning to walk to walk away from each other but I could still see you know this conversation was incomplete so then I said to her you know Boris Johnson said we can hug and she just jumped on oh. me <laughs> she just jumped on me you know and she just wanted a hug oh. and th- and that was it you know and then and once that was done she was okay and we went our ways and, and 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 went home I could just sense that she wasn't all right in the way she said all right mm,
2: yeah well <laughs> The thing is, is that you will have learnt that from people like Mr Carr because he sensed in you when things were good, bad, ugly and just giving people the room, it doesn't take a lot to give people the space to say something that they might want to say. I think if he was alive and he could hear you going from talking about the impact that he had on you when you could have ended up, as we've already said, at worst dead from misdemeanor at best having a troublesome adulthood as your youth had been for him to then hear you talking about picking up a BAFTA I should imagine he'd be pretty chuffed (laughs) so what would you say how would you sign off the letter to Mr Carr to let him know how much you appreciate him
3: well I would say something like uh dear Mr Carr I've probably spent more time talking to you than I ever did to my real father. I never became a mechanic. You probably knew I wouldn't. I became a poet and I found other ways of of expressing myself. It's cool now. Very cool. I even made it on Jess Phillips' podcast. The really important thing is I always have consideration for others now. So thanks Mr Carr and I still can't believe that's your real name.
2: It does seem unlikely that his name was Mr. Carr, but still, it is a common name. It's a common Irish name.
3: I mean, yeah, that's what the other staff called him, so I guess it must have been. But it's
2: Mr. <laughs> Mr. Carr. <laughs> I had a dentist in Bourneville called Mr. Payne. <laughs> 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 Didn't much like going to that dentist. <sighs> Mr. Payne. Uh, yeah, the there's, there's a thing, isn't there? It's... It's called nominative determinism, isn't it? Where you end up with the name that if, you know, you're called like Crystal Chandelier, you'll end up being a stripper. Like there's a thing where they say that people will become the thing that is in their name. I don't know how true it is, but in Mr. Carr's case, it definitely stacks up. We'll be back for Benjamin's final letter after a short break.
0: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live.
1: That's BlueNile.com.
2: Before the break, we talked about the letters that you would send to someone who means the world to you and the letter that you would send to someone who's no longer around. The final letter is the letter that you would send to somebody who might not know just how significant a role they've played in your life. So who would you want to share that
3: gratitude with? Well, I'd like to share this with a person that you may have met, and her name is Angela Davis. Oh, yeah. You have met her? I haven't met her, but I know who she is. Yeah, she's like political activist, philosopher, academic, author.
2: I wish I'd met her. She's amazing. Yeah,
3: she's brilliant. and Not so long ago, she was actually in Britain doing a tour, and I I, I just keep missing her. She's, I really, I think she's amazing. And she's like a long-time member of the Communist Party and she's just stayed that way. And even though things have changed, her kind of politics have managed to kind of keep up with the times, but the kind of what's at the heart of what she believes has not changed at all, you know. So I really respect her for that. And she's from Birmingham.
2: Is she from Birmingham? Alabama. I was going to (laughs) say... That's like that. I would definitely know if Angela Davies was from Birmingham. Recently, uh, my husband often when he Google's like something like you know plumber in Birmingham, we get results from Birmingham, Alabama. And so, I recently wrote to the mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, who's an amazing uh, man, and um, I said, "Does that ever happen to you? Do you ever get like you know when you're look when you're searching for something in Birmingham, Alabama, do you ever get sent to like Mister Egg in Hurst Street in Birmingham?" <laughs>
3: Did he get a reply?
2: No, he's not replied to me yet, Raphael Warnock. I'm coming for you. <laughs>
3: you need to get him on the programme. Why are yeah, you not writing it. letters? Why
2: are you not let's from one Birmingham to another? Tell me what's going on.
3: Do you remember there was some controversy once or a funny moment when I don't remember which way around it was. I do remember this. I think it was Birmingham, Alabama. Put it in a brochure of tourism a photograph of Birmingham, England, or was it the other way around? Didn't...
2: No, I think I think it was the other way around. I think Birmingham City Council right. put in some sort of brochure, and the the skyline was Birmingham, <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> ah, that's so funny. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to Angela Davis. So, uh, you've you've met Angela Davis, I presume? No, you've not met her. You just no. She has no idea the effect that she's had on you my gosh, I'm going to send this to her. This is exciting. Um, And so what impact do you think that she's
3: had on your life? Well, I was a kid when I went, well, we was all kids. When I was really young, you know, I experienced my first racist attack So I was coming from school in um, Hockley at the time and a kid came behind me on the bicycle and slapped the back of my head with a brick as he was riding past. He didn't throw it, he literally slapped the back of my head and it was the first time I ever heard somebody saying you know go home you black bastard and I didn't understand it I remember I had to go to my mother and say what was the point I was going home anyway and she explained to me that for, home for him was somewhere else and home for me was 242 Farm Street and then there was lots of other things happening you know Enoch Powell and all that kind of stuff and it was just kind of in the background I didn't quite get it but I could see what was going on in my family. They were talking about racism. I remember my mum coming home one day, really happy. And I was like, why are you so happy? And she said to me that there was a woman in a restaurant who saw Enoch Powell and threw a cup of tea over him. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "I was like, that's really bad, isn't it? And then she explained to me about Enoch Powell and what he was and what he stood for and everything. And so Angela Davis was like somebody that was kind of... Well, I think when I first saw her, I think I saw a wanted poster, you know, the most wanted woman in America, you know, wanted dead or alive. It was that kind of poster, you know, because she was, I think she was run at the time. And then she got in prison and it was free Angela Davis. And you just see posters with a fist or her afro. Mm-hmm. That was a symbol, really.
2: It was. The afro was iconic.
3: Yes. And I didn't understand the kind of nuances and the details of it, of it but I just knew she was a strong black woman standing up for us and I just wanted to identify with her you know I remember the first time I ever got kind of um, suspended from school I came in and on one trouser leg I had kind of drew free Angela Davis on the other trouser leg I had just a picture of the afro which was her symbol and um, the teacher went get them off and and I just pulled my trousers down in front (laughs) of the whole class (laughs) And the teacher, I didn't mean like that, you know, and then I said something, I just refused to do anything, and got, and got sent home. But she was just kind of symbolic of what struggle and something I didn't quite understand, but I knew was right. I didn't understand it all, but just I just knew she was important.
2: Yeah, even without ever reading anything that she'd written or hearing her speak even, she is iconic. The image of her is iconic, even in and of itself, especially at the time you're talking about, is that that you know this, and it's not because she's a singer or she's a dancer or she's... This is a woman who... Her image in your life came about because of her thoughts, her ideas, her resistance. And that, even if you'd never heard or really understood what, you know, Marxism was, which I'm assuming... You know, there wasn't a lot of chat about Marxism around the table, although in my family there was. She was out there because of ideas and ideals. It has a big impact. And she has remained, to this day, stridently the same woman. (laughs) Amazing that she has done that. Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely love to go and hear her speak. We should invite her to the new... Benjamin Zephaniah, wing of Birmingham (laughs) University, where I am an alumni. We could host this event, I'm sure. We have a chance of getting her over to talk about feminism and black power.
3: I I don't think I've ever been starstruck in my life, but I genuinely think I probably would be starstruck then. Mm. Very few people have really made me starstruck. I think the people, there are three people in the world who I think, if I met them, I'm not sure if I could hold myself up. One is Noam Chomsky, the other is Arundhati Roy. I I actually met Arundhati Roy, but just in passing, very quickly, we were on the same show. But I really want to have a conversation with her and Angela Davis.
2: Wow, that's quite the dinner party, that would be. Noam Chomsky,
3: (laughs) you, Arundhati Roy, who is amazing. It's difficult to think in any other time, because this is the time I'm alive in, but I think I'm alive in such an interesting time, and I've managed to meet so many interesting people, although there's a lot I haven't met, I just think, wow, you know, I've met Muhammad Ali, i met Nelson Mandela.
2: My God, you met Muhammad Ali! Wow.
3: When he came to Birmingham, weren't you there? I was
2: not there, but I tell you what, in Spark Hill, it's literally like every single bit of graffiti is a homage (laughs) to the time that Muhammad Ali came to Birmingham and Malcolm X. And both of them are memorialised by a huge amount of street art in Spark Hill. Yeah, I think that you're right, and I think that somebody like uh, Angela Davies... When you say you've lived through an interesting time, I think that somebody who has been, and the same could be said of of Noam Chomsky as well, without question, but somebody like Angela Davies, who has seen a whole lifetime of change in all of the things that she talks about, whether it's the rights of women, the rights of uh, marginalised black people, that all of those things, and class as well, I i'd be fascinated to sit down and talk to her and see what she thinks has changed because i think that the likely answer would be not enough is the reality not enough and and as somebody whose whole lifetime of activism has undoubtedly seen like women come out of the kitchen into the world of work but actually in reality has any equalization of Power, I think is the question that I would like to ask Angela Davis is do women do black people do poor people have any more power? We might have tinkered around the edges, but I'm not sure that the power structure has changed at all
3: no, I think it's really it's a bit like what we have in the media and television, especially since Black Lives Matter. You have a lot of black people in commercials and all the various awards are are recognising a lot more black people, but they're not behind the scenes still. They're not making decisions in big ways. We are dancing, we are singing, we're playing sports and stuff like that. But um, I'm making a programme at the moment about football and about how the Windrush generation have impacted on football. And it's amazing, the contribution that black people, and, and when I when talk about football, I'm talking about women's football as well, have made to football in this country. Hope Powell, the first black woman, black female, full captain of an English team, you know. But she's kind of out on her own in a way. There's very few managers, very few people behind the scene, you know, working for the FA, really making big decisions and i think that's where we've got to go next my university i mean they know this yeah, so i'm not talking behind their back my the university that i work for brunel university in oxbridge is one of the most multicultural universities in the country when you, you all different languages are spoken people from all over the world and people from all ethnicities in within britain are there but the staff are basically white you know, there's a few of us. When I first arrived there, people used to make appointments for me because they just wanted to sit and hang out with a black professor. You know what I mean? that, 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 that's, that's all they wanted to do, you know what I mean? And they would get excited by it, you know. <laughs> and sometimes I would get students coming into me crying because they've had a run in with another professor or a member of staff that just doesn't understand them or where they're coming from or an issue that's, that they're having to deal with. So they'd come to me, so I'd end up being like a social worker type. And I'd have to go to a member of staff and say, look, we we need to talk about this student because you're you're completely misunderstanding her or him. Um, So I think Angela Davis would, I don't want to speak for her, but I'm pretty sure she would say, they've dressed the shopping window, but the, I don't know, the prices are still the same and and who owns the shop is still the same. And, you know, behind the scenes.
2: The thing about the black power movement of the 1960s and 70s is that it was called power and it it headed that up straight in, this is about power. And then we sort of saw about how liberalism became, and equality became a, a little bit about appearances and for the sake of looking better and making sure that everybody... And it's important, representation is important without question, but power... Is the thing, and it's become like a dirty word as if we shouldn't struggle for power as people. We shouldn't want to have extra power because it makes us sound like megalomaniacs. But I think that Angela Davis would want us to fight for power for those people. Like power is
3: everything. I have to be really honest here with you. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an anarchist. I do have a problem with power. When we do martial arts, we talk about power. But we never meet force with force. So it's what kind of power is it? What do we do with it? Of course, that's all that matters, is what you use it for. Yeah. So if it's just power for having power's sake to be able to rule over people. You've got
2: to have it to do good things with. And yes. power should be power should be taken in order to give it away. It's how you pass power back out. You take it and you give it
3: out. Hold on. Hold, hold on, Jess. Is that like a Jess Phillips thing? Power should be given. <laughs> power should be... What did you just say? Power should be taken in order to be given away. Did you get that from Muhammad Ali or somebody, or is that you? <laughs> no, that's me. I think I'm going to quote you on that. <laughs> you beautiful. can quote
2: me. Po- power. I, I want to take power in order to give it away. I often think that the power in the little there's a little symbol on the paper that you get given, like the little portcullis, when you become a member of Parliament, and you get a little portcullis paper, and that piece of paper will, if an old lady is boiler is broken and she rings up the council and says, "My boiler's is broken, can you come and fix it?" for some reason they don't they don't do it whereas if i send a letter with right, the little portcullis at the top that little powerful yeah. symbol the council will go out and fix their boiler. And so I, I'm like, I tell you what, why don't I just give out a piece of this paper to every one of my <laughs> constituents? Just share the power around. I'm like, have the little piece of paper. Um, you, everybody gets one shot at a thing that they need power for. Have this little cresty thing. Obviously, that is definitely against the rules and I'm not allowed to do that. But if I were an anarchist like you, I would be spreading it across. I'd be throwing it out in Birmingham Yardley. Anyway, we, we digress. So... How would you sign off your letter to Angela Davies?
3: I'd say, um, dear Angela, I'm sorry I keep missing you when you come to England. You were the person that made me realise that I don't have to accept injustice. You woke me up and I've always wanted to thank you in person for raising my political consciousness. Maybe one day I will. What you have done for me has not only helped me, but it's helped all the other people that I have helped. I know you've never met me, but I just want to say, I think you're one of the greatest freedom fighters who have ever walked this earth and you're still cool. Power to the peaceful.
2: (laughs) She is so cool still to this day, so cool. Um, So your first letter was to Chen Zhao Sen, talking about how he's helped you get rid of the chaos And helped you focus and feel alive. And uh, quite specifically, be aware of your toenails. (laughs) Every part of your body, including your toenails. Your second letter was to Mr. Carr. We don't know where Mr. Carr is anymore, but he was the first man who ever spoke to you about your feelings and allowed you to have feelings and gave you... Some of the gifts of advice about considering others. And then the iconic Angela Ivan Davies, who is a, a total icon and powerhouse and continues to be it throughout your entire life. How do you feel, having written these letters and thought about who you would write them to, did anything about thinking about them Surprise you in how you felt about people and surprise you that they were the people that you'd picked?
3: Yes, I think Angela Davis, I've always wanted to meet her, I've always wanted to say something to her. And if I did have an address, I probably would write to her, maybe if I could write. But um, Chen Zhao Sen, because of the language barrier, I've never thought of writing him a letter. But during lockdown, especially because I've had the, the Tai Chi training, I do it all the time and it's kept me sane. And it's really helped me. And the other times when I think I was possibly kind of, could have been struggling with mental health, I always have this place to go to. And it just kind of balances out the brain. And um, Mr. Carr, I've always wanted to thank him too. So uh, maybe this, the surprise one for me was Chen Jiao-sen. And I think, I think that's because of this year, maybe, more than anything.
2: And I, I think that when you said that, He didn't. It was a surprise to me when you said that you'd never really had a conversation with him either. And this person means the whole world to you. Obviously, you can communicate with somebody without speaking, without question, and in fact, most of our communication is non-verbal thought oh that's a surprise when I said have you ever told him how you feel about him and you were like no because he couldn't understand me even if I did I was just sort of like oh god <laughs> like that is yeah. it's yeah but he obviously has a really big impact on you I bet he'd be thrilled thrilled but calm is how I'm going to imagine him in my yeah. head thrilled but calm whereas yeah. when I'm thrilled I'm like ah! Uh, I I think that maybe Chen sen is uh, considerably more calm than me but maybe not maybe he's absolutely raging it up Uh, well thank you so much for coming on and talking to me and thank you for sharing your letters it has been a total pleasure for me to say cultural references and people understand them (laughs) Uh, so that's you know nobody i am ever going to interview will know where hall green is or the fact that there's a waitrose there so it has been a total pleasure for me from one brummie to another i'm very proud that you are from birmingham
3: oh thank you very much and i love you too
2: oh that's kind thank you so much for listening to this episode of yours sincerely with jess phillips If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You can also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod.
1: Goodbye.